Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week we're continuing our watch through of The Magicians with Season 1, Episode 4, The World in the Walls. Britt, could you tell us what happens in this episode? So Quentin wakes up and discovers he's not in his room at Breakbills, but in a psychiatric hospital being treated for his supposed delusions about being a magician. Quentin thinks it's all a dream at first, so he tries to get real-world Penny's attention by singing, quite badly, Taylor Swift's Shake It Off with his music therapy group. But when his father visits and they watch a video of Quentin yelling about his dad being the beast, Quentin gives up and accepts his circumstances. Luckily, Real Penny saves the day by entering Quentin's dream, and Quentin is inspired to find answers to what Ellsworth Downs is in the Fillory books. It's revealed that Julia and Marina cast the spell over Quentin, and Julia is distraught when Marina flippantly divulges that he may never wake up. When Dean Fogg lowers the Breakbills wards, Marina and Julia go in to find the memories that Breakbills took from Marina when she was expelled. Quentin is finally able to get out of the spell with help from Penny and Jane, and by ceasing to play chess with the Madness Maker. The episode ends when Marina throws Julia out, saying she is cutting her off from magic because she told Fogg what they did and tried to help Q. Yeah, so this episode's fun. (laughs) Not depressing at all. This episode's a lot. Yeah, so let's head into our discussion of it. So what were your magic moments? Yeah, I think it was great that the episode starts with Quentin waking up and he's in that same gray hoodie and like gray tones mm-hmm. of this outside world. But it just, it's so different than when we're seeing Quentin in Breakbills. And so it's just the stark contrast, I think. Yeah, it automatically tells you something is wrong, at least for Quentin. Totally. I also just loved in this episode that you get to see how powerful psychic abilities can be the fact that penny in his sleep is going into quentin's dreams Mm -hmm. like is amazing and you know penny saves the day with his awesome abilities which is cool yeah i also thought it was really interesting because we've seen marina before and maybe be questionable right and clearly she's blackmailing katie but here we really get to see the lengths that she'll go to to get what she wants and not care about how those negatively impact anyone else and she does so in a way that's not just that she expects everybody to feel exactly how she does (laughs) it's that she doesn't care because she's going to control the situation because she has the power and do whatever she wants. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, we really get to understand how dangerous she can be and how powerful as well. Because as soon as she gets her memories back, she teleports julia out of the safe house like that seems like it would be kind of advanced magic to be able to teleport someone else who you're not even next to Mm -hmm. so yeah i just i thought it was a really great episode for learning more about marina totally even though it was like on the side Mm -hmm. and i think you're absolutely right about these ideas of power it connects really well to dean fogg's comment last episode Mm. about how learning magic is about the acquisition of power and that there are dangers of doing so without a partner and we see here marina just cares about the acquisition of more power Mm -hmm. and even though she has people working with her she doesn't have partners she has people who she's ordering around or manipulating And that's bringing in not only the dangers of the magic itself, but narrative dangers, dangers of working with someone who doesn't care about the livelihoods of the people around her. Absolutely, because Marina is smart enough to understand that she needs other people to do some of these spells, Mm -hmm. but it isn't cooperative magic, right? She says cooperative, but it's not because she's using other people to get what she wants. She's not going to destroy herself in the process because she's Marina and Mm -hmm. she's smart, but 
Yeah, she she definitely doesn't work with people. She has people working for her. Totally. Yeah, and then the last magic moment I had, well, it was really several things, but just Jason Ralph in this episode as Quentin. I think he just does such a great job from his terrible singing to, which I don't know how genuine that was or not, uh, to when he's sneaking the scotch tape his eyes are like bulging he's just like oh i've got it you know and hit the awkward hug with his dad that communicates so much in just this one moment where there isn't even any dialogue uh yeah i just think he does a really good job at going between humorous things and really deep troubling things yeah agreed i think that the episode centers around him so wholly in that setting. All the other characters are, are cameos, essentially, mm-hmm. and he pulls it off. He is able to make us care about his experience there and find entertainment, like you mentioned. Uh, yeah, just a, an exceptional job. I think that this episode really shows why he, as an actor, was chosen to lead this show. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But what about you? What are your magic moments? Yeah, I had a couple of the same ones. The awkward hug with the dad I thought was really, really well done. You know, the dad calling him Curly Q. Mm -hmm. And particularly as we see the fictional past of their interactions in this world, that awkwardness, I think, communicates a lot about their relationship, both in actuality and in Quentin's perspective, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I really appreciated. And then just all of his sneaking around just to get the tape. Mm-hmm. You know, he he looks at a computer where he sees the name Ellsworth Downs. And my thought was, he's like, oh, now I can hack into this computer. I can go in and learn more information about this place. And I was like, no, no, no. I'm here for the tape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is... Practical. Exactly. Yeah. He doesn't have hacking skills. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it does also, like, it's entertaining, it's funny, but it also highlights how... Narratively, his goal for the second act of the episode is just to get tape Mm -hmm. to try to read this book, which I think is just uh, really highlights, again, some of the fun that the show can have, but also what it means when you are taken away from other kinds of resources Mm -hmm. and where you lose access to them or you have that access taken away from you. Yeah. Yeah. I also thought that the Madness Maker's representation was just so well done Hmm. because you know we hear the narration from the book but the narration doesn't exactly describe him physically Mm -hmm. but we get this intense creepy looking character with metal teeth and this big smile that's Mm -hmm. just like planted on his face this over-the-top outfit yeah very theatrical Extremely theatrical, and even a little bit of the the setting there, and the set design for his manner or what have you, but I just thought that his character was represented so well, which is a treat for us as the audience watching a TV show, where we get to see this kind of creepy thing. But then, when you think about how, for Quentin, this is entirely in his imagination, Mm. that he hasn't seen the Madness Maker. Yeah but only read about him and then imagined him this way, I just find that, yeah, just really, really fascinating. Such a great design for a character who is a side character in this one episode, wasn't even included in The Magician's books, mm-hmm. but just is part of this. Yeah, I, I thought it was it was really fantastic. Yeah, it, it's such a small thing, but it's something you'll remember because he was so distinctive and... Yeah, he definitely felt like he could be both in a dream and a book. Uh, so, yeah, that was a nice bridging of, of the gap as well between reality, dream, books, you know. Yeah, yeah. But why don't we head into our next segment on the setting and society. So what points did you want to talk about? So one is genre. It's a fun thing that the show does sometimes where it, kind of has a meta commentary on television or, or different things because Quentin's like 
oh, this is one of those dreams. Why not? I'm dreaming. Let's mm. skip to the part where you don't believe me. And then he's like, oh, this is a trial dream. Those take forever. He talks about Star Trek, you know. And mm -hmm. so you have these different ideas of things that sure can happen in real life with different dreams and whatnot, but are often portrayed in television as specific episodes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just him being aware of those things and commenting on those things is both fun for the audience, but also like very Quentin. And so yeah, I just, I think it's it's a fun thing because usually shows unless they're kind of more spoofy shows they don't have that sort of commentary they just have the whatever theme episode and that's it but here it's like this is what this episode is mm -hmm. <laughs> so i enjoyed that i think and the characters understand that because like we've talked about before they have that relatability they have that media competence that mm -hmm. someone of that age in our society would have Absolutely. Yeah. I think where it gets into a difficult place, though, is the psychiatric hospital yes. setting. That is something that every so often you do see in TV shows where it's, yeah, like a little theme for the episode and almost exclusively portrayed either as a joke and it's like comedic or as a super creepy thing. Yeah. And when you have that sort of portrayal, you know, that does seep into the perspectives people have in the real world mm -hmm. and makes people who have to be in hospitals like this into a caricature, you know? Mm -hmm. um, Alice and Elliot. Yeah, it's like their mental illnesses in this are supposed to be funny, you know? Yeah. And mental illness isn't funny. So I think that's where it gets into the problematic part. I think it is really fascinating, though, that this is coming from Quentin. It's, it's, it's the spell working with his mind and his perspectives since he's been to a psychiatric hospital before mm -hmm. and that this is how subconsciously at least he views himself or those around him which is yeah a fascinating aspect i haven't seen portrayed before hmm interesting you have but you just perhaps forgot about it because but the vampire slayer episode that does something similar i think does another interesting job I remember there being an episode about that, but I don't remember it having that aspect. Because, yeah, she was institutionalized in between the movie and the TV show. It's something that gets retconned in that episode. Oh, um, got it, got it. And Maybe it's because we never saw that. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And and the show does, that episode does kind of toy with the idea of her thinking about it being someplace that she's never left. And her as a slayer is is been imagined and yeah, I'd be interested in going back and rewatching that kind of in conversation with this episode because of those similarities. I'm sure that that show has even worse representations <laughs> of mental illness yeah. in the setting around I her. Assume so. But I do find the thing that I do really remember from that episode and that I see here in Quentin is how for both of them, they struggle with understanding what is real and how that interacts with something that is so core to their identity for him now being a magician, for her being the slayer, and how that struggle, I think, is really powerful in not only not being sure about your experiences being real, but in how you identify yourself and what your life is like when that identity that you have believed in and has been powerful and important for you and traumatic at times is then questioned. A big difference, though, would be that for Quentin, it's going back to his longer-held identity with depression. True, yeah. Uh, so that's the part that is the constant, and the magician part is his fear mm. that, that it's not real, that reality is going back to his life before he found out he was a magician mm -hmm. and that maybe yeah it's all a dream or was a hallucination i mean from from 
episode one, when he saw Julia, he was like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I started new meds yesterday and I didn't know if that was, you know, so he's had that kind of fear. So yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's interesting, but... <laughs> also problematic. Yeah, yeah, because... I have no idea what an actual psychiatric hospital would be like, but I would imagine it would not be like that. Yeah. I have a couple people I'm close to who've been institutionalized mm-hmm. short term, and the hospitals tend to be, the like, design of them is very different. They're usually very bright, at least in Southern California. <laughs> a lot of natural light, a lot of open areas and things like that, which is not really what you see in these kinds of episodes. But I remember for one of the people I know... The thing that they came out afterwards, one of the the biggest issues was a kind of discomfort and fear about the other people Mm -hmm. and just being unsure how to engage with or or relate with them and trying to avoid them as best they could, especially when you just don't have much agency or ability or even things to pass the time um, Mm -hmm. in choice and in what to do with your life. So... So yeah, I know that those there are those differences, but I think that, as you mentioned, the representation of the other people with mental illnesses are typically quite shallow. And um, anytime you engage with something that is so difficult for so many people and use it in a form for, for entertainment, I think that that is going to bring a lot of those kinds of problems to the fore. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when... Some of these things, I mean, I I don't think that the part where he was going to have a lobotomy was at all being made fun of or joking about or whatnot, but that was a reality for people. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just looked up some things briefly, and by 1951, almost 20,000 lobotomies had been performed in the United States. Mm. And it was also happening in, in Europe and Canada, you know, in, in different places. And more lobotomies were performed on women than men. So mm. this is an intersectional issue as well. Yeah. Uh, a 1951 study found that nearly 60% of American lobotomy patients were women. And in like a four-year period of time in Ontario, it was 74% of lobotomies were performed on women. So... Yeah, I mean, there are some real historical issues here and really serious things that that have happened to people throughout the progression of science and treatments. Yeah, absolutely. To kind of put my historian hat on. Do it. uh, I love that hat. Looks good on you. Thank you. (laughs) Another great example of how institutionalization has completely dehumanized and stripped the agency of people Mm -hmm. is forced sterilization. Much of the American eugenics movement was fighting not just for eugenics based off of race, but also based off of ability. And any person who's institutionalized in a mental institution, in a prison, in a poorhouse could be subject to forced sterilization, regardless of whether they even knew about the procedure happening. This is another thing that has much more focused on women than it has on men. And yeah, it's just really frustrating to to know about. Um, I think in the United States, prior to the 1960s, there was about 300,000 forced sterilizations of women through government institutions. Mm. And about a third of those were here in California. We are one of the centers of the eugenics movement. And forced sterilization has continued, especially for incarcerated women, in the years since. So, yeah, these are, you know, understandably really scary things. And it's interesting how Clinton, as a man, is scared about this lobotomy. That's that's a major fear, which I totally understand. But these other questions and these gendered questions don't exactly come up. And I wonder if that would be have been different if it was a female character who mm. was going through that experience. Yeah, and not just along gender lines, but also along racial lines, too, Mm -hmm. with indigenous people or Latinx people being sterilized as well. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. so there's, yeah, there's just a a lot there. Yeah. Uh, So. Yeah, and and when 
people of color are much more likely to be institutionalized than white people. That also means that these horrific actions are going to disproportionately affect them, mm-hmm. um, not to mention the treatment of them within those institutions. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to mention in the setting in society is just <laughs> Penny in this dream being portrayed as a Indian immigrant Mm -hmm. who is a staff person, but of the staff, he's also cleaning. So it's like, seems sort of janitorial, but also seems like he's making sure that people are taking their pills. And so we're not entirely clear on what his job is there, but having the accent and having him saying that they're having chicken curry which is of course my favorite is just it's such a hilarious good moment of pointing out like this is how people are portrayed Mm -hmm. and this is what oftentimes asian american actors are asked to do portray someone with an accent and in a much more stereotyped role so then putting that in there and real Penny commenting <laughs> on how racist it is, is just such an interesting choice mm-hmm. Like to be like, yeah, Quentin's a little bit racist. You mm-hmm. know, he, he has these maybe subconscious ways of th- that his mind would go to in dreams mm-hmm. and it'd be like, well, why are you thinking that? Yeah, it was just just a very interesting choice, but one that I'm glad they commented on. Same, yeah. I think that it could absolutely have a reading of, as Americans, we are socialized to be racist, to have Mm -hmm. racist thoughts. And people have argued that much of anti-racism is having to confront your own racism and challenge those thoughts and assumptions that often come with it. And I could imagine Quentin as a white man when he meets Penny subconsciously identifying him according to his race. Mm -hmm. And so for his subconscious to then personify Penny in his mind, having that be a factor and a outsized factor. And yeah, I think that 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 is an interesting choice to call out your lead as having racist subconscious thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Is, is great uh, and, and calling that we out. do, mm-hmm. right? Uh, even if it's internalized racism. So it's, I like the subconscious aspect of it because, sure, there are people who are completely conscious of their racism and like it, mm-hmm. <laughs> believe in it. But a lot of people who would be against those things consciously doesn't mean subconsciously there isn't some of the racism that has been socialized into us growing up, you know? Exactly. Uh, So, yeah, it was was just a a kind of surprising element to add in there, but one that, yeah, I I really appreciate, especially from a show that doesn't have just the token Asian character. And it's a way of taking their own world-building seriously, that if they say Mm -hmm. that this is what's happening in this world, that it's based off of Quentin's imagination, what negative elements does that bring in as well? Yeah, if he has subconscious ableism, he also has subconscious racism. Precisely. And subconscious sexism, mm-hmm. right? Alice is the, the sexually charged in this dream. Yeah. Yeah. But what about you? What are your setting in society points? I wanted to talk about how Marina had her memories of her time at break bills taken from her when she was expelled. I think she might use the word amputated. Which I think was a really good word choice. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Except that amputation typically comes because of a injury that is so destructive that amputation is the best way of dealing with it. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the injury is entirely imagined. Whatever she did to get expelled, it didn't lead to an injury that would wreck her entire body. It broke the rules of break bills, and therefore they took back what they gave to her. Mm -hmm. So it's less of an amputation, it's more of a rescinding of what they kind of consider this gift that they gave to her. And it just shows 
the extent to which the administration of Break Bills and the Magical Society in the show claims an ownership on magic. And that the knowledge that you gain in your magical studies, you won't have access to afterwards if you don't fulfill their vision of your journey. Mm-hmm. It just makes me think of, yeah, if you don't complete your degree, say even if you get expelled from an institution, you don't get the degree that comes at the end of it, but you still get to utilize the knowledge and skills that you built in trying to achieve that degree, right? They can't take those things away from you. And here... They can. They can, and they (laughs) do so readily. And... I mean, also knowing that it's Marina, maybe she did something that was really severe. True, but she went and she saw a number of different of these books and things like that. It sounds like this is a kind of standard operating procedure. Well, I mean... There were, like, a dozen of those boxes or something hidden, which, considering how long break bills would have been operating, isn't that many, actually. True. I mean, yeah, so it's... Maybe there's different levels of expulsion. Yeah. But the fact that Julia and all of the other people who who take the test and fail have their memories erased... Make me believe that break bills would do this, have this kind of response and use it more liberally than they should. Yeah. I mean, totally. It's, uh, I don't know if maybe that was in the paperwork that they signed at the beginning, <laughs> but still, it's a violent act on somebody's mind and life to just remove things, which is why I like the word amputated, because for Marina... It was something that is a part of her, Mm -hmm. something that she feels she needs, something that is so integrated in who she is and her daily life that has now been cut off from her. And after that, she had to figure out how to adjust and get by without it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's certainly a very evocative word. And especially when... People can have things like phantom pains with amputated body parts. I don't know what, how she learned that this is what happened to her, but mm. she retains some memory, even though she doesn't retain most of the memory. Yeah. And from that knowledge that, yeah, that causes her pain. Mm-hmm. And just the, the extent to which Break Bills acts as a gatekeeper and the way that Quentin has maintained that in his conversation with Julia last episode. It just makes me very sympathetic to Hedwitches. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting when Marina is the leader of these Hedwitches and is so clearly villainous. <laughs> <laughs> but Hedwitches, I think, as a whole, I find, yeah, very sympathetic as literally marginalized people who try to have access to power or agency, but are being denied it by the institutions. And how, yeah, that mirrors so much of the ways that institutions are set up to continue and exacerbate marginalization in our own society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in a sad reflection of university systems, and at least in the United States, or, or places where you have to pay a lot of money Mm -hmm. to be able to get education after high school years, you know, and and yeah, yeah, a lot of people don't have access and these institutions make it so hard for them to have access. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not just the institutions, but the entire economy and, you know, government, how things are set up. Yeah. Certainly. But yeah. And, and the fact that I've mentioned before, I've sat in on some of my previous professors' classes and stuff after I graduated and everything. And that's, like, all of them just, like, yeah, that's totally fine. But they would get in trouble if the institution knew because I'm not paying for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and the fact that, yeah, were they scared that Marina would do something terrible, terrible with her? Magic knowledge, maybe, but it doesn't seem 
like they really care about that as long as you follow the rules. Because mm-hmm. in episode one, Dean Fogg was like, you can do whatever you want after you graduate. If taking over the world is something you want to do, you can try that. And so I wonder, yeah, if more it's that they don't want people to be able to go and disseminate that to Hedgewitch communities. Mm. And then Hedgewitches, which must be greater in number than people who go through break bills or any other university systems like break bills, they don't want them to provide an alternative mm-hmm. um, and do so in a way that is outside of their elite control. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our own education system has such a limited view of what entails higher education. You have to go through a specific kind of program to receive a bachelor's degree or a master's or a PhD or what have you. Mm -hmm. And you should be taught by people who have specific kinds of knowledge in the field. They've already gone through this kind of program where other forms of experience, other forms of intelligence, other forms of skills are not uplifted in the same ways and have much less capability of being able to be passed down through a formalized structure that has the same amount of credibility. The exclusivity of these institutions is something that maintains their power and their prestige. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that they naturally would want to keep. Absolutely. But let's head into our next section on themes and schemes from this episode. Yeah, I think one of them is about the dangers of magic Mm -hmm. uh, and the violence that you can do with it. And that is linked to people, I think, because at the end of the episode, when Quentin is talking to Fogg, Fogg says you can't just fly above right and wrong just because you can do magic and that magic doesn't solve problems and Quentin says it magnifies them. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense, right? Like Mm -hmm. people can do both very wonderful, beautiful, loving things and terrible, horrific, oppressive things. And you give people more avenues to do that and you're going to have more problems yeah, right and more extreme ones and you know uh, hopefully some solutions but it seems like we can always come up with more problems than we can come up with solutions mm-hmm. or we can come up with the solutions but we can't actually implement them mm-hmm. because of the scale of the problems and so yeah i i just think it's an important thing that they're bringing in more in in a more focused way that People are dangerous, and so therefore magic is dangerous. And and they're going to have to be grappling with this from here on out. Yeah. I also thought with Ellsworth Downs, it was talking about his need to make others suffer was because he felt so alone in his cursed state. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that that was very reflective of Julia mm. in this episode. She wanted to make Quentin suffer, not permanently, (laughs) but for a time, because she feels so alone in this state where she's been thrown out from this university and cast aside in her friendship that they were best friends for so long, for so much of their life. And now there's this chasm between them and she feels judged and looked down upon and ridiculed in a way because she doesn't have the same access that he does. And and out of that pain and anger and frustration, yeah, she she wants to make him suffer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just I thought it was an interesting thing because... This episode is so much about Quentin, but then it also has this that I think sheds a lot of light on on Juliet. Not that her decisions were good. They weren't. Uh, And I think Marina is similar. You Mm. know, maybe she would have interacted slightly differently if she hadn't had this educational violence happen to her. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting idea, which I think we'll probably see more of. Yeah, absolutely. Listeners who followed us during our Hunger Games read-through have heard me say this kind of thing before, but this slower, more analytical 
process of watching the show for the podcast has helped provide a lot more insight Mm. in this area because the first time I watched through, this was like so damning for Julia for me Mm -hmm. of just the fact that she was willing to do something like this to Quentin to place some of his greatest fears and these kinds of fears uh, and trap him in those even temporarily was just so, so cruel that it was very hard for Julia to come back from it. And in this kind of slower pace, as we are thinking more deeply about the characters and their experiences and the systems they're operating within, I I definitely empathize and sympathize with, with Julia a lot more at this point. But like you said, it doesn't forgive those actions but it does explain some of them and it makes her a character who this makes more sense in because the first time I watched it, I just felt like this was so needlessly cruel and it didn't sound like the kind of thing that a longtime friend, best friend of someone would do. Mm-hmm. But with our discussions of even within the three episodes, the ways that they have broken their friendship does highlight that more and the ways in which Julia has fallen more and more into toxic relationships with other people and with magic itself. And seeing this in contrast to Alice's desire to see her brother or the spell they did in the first episode that ended up summoning the beast, like these other mistakes that people are making in magic. Yeah, just I find it much more nuanced and interesting and much less kind of just makes me so enraged Mm -hmm. um, because of the action. Yeah, it's not just drama for drama's sake. Totally, yeah. Though I do still think it is one of the most cruel things that could be done to someone. Although that's probably also partially my own experiences, my own struggles with mental health and and things like that. But um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the last one I was kind of thinking about is just depression and as Mm. as we kind of track that throughout yeah i just think it's done in such an interesting way because it's not just depression portrayed but it's depression that interacts with magic Mm -hmm. so it can do different things but the core of the feelings or the ideas still we can relate to you know Mm -hmm. and uh so for quentin he he finally can be what he wants, what he's daydreamed about. Magic's real, but he's still afraid of, quote, being nothing. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like the episode in this dream state, in some ways, was kind of like almost an exercise in a depressive spiral mm. that he starts out trying to fight it but then thing after thing goes wrong and this is his subconscious right is adding on to them his roommate who he doesn't know is shredding the book that has the answer Mm -hmm. so it's just like he's yeah being consumed by this hopelessness that there's no way to get out there's no answer there's no solution there's nothing you can do but accept it and just sit there staring off into nothingness you know and yeah that scene where he shuts down is just Mm -hmm. so powerful absolutely and oftentimes those things can come from our fears or from what we think of ourselves and and i like how Jane says you can hide from it forever in this quiet blank void or you know you can figure out a way to get out of this and in the end it was to stop playing the game which you know that could mean several different things or whatnot but if if we think about it in terms of depression it's like to stop spiraling to, to get ourselves out and like refuse to go down that path sometimes we can't right sometimes mm-hmm. we don't have the ability to be able to do it but as much as we can yeah i'm not going to continue being stuck in this loop that is unraveling me and at at the end i think it, it kind of punctuated 
when Dean Fogg says, I'm glad you're still here with us, Quentin says, me too, actually. But he says it, like, almost surprised, like, mm. now that he's out of this dream, yeah, he's he's actually glad that, that he's out and that he's that he is somewhere instead of maybe being apathetic about everything. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. This episode, as bleak and at times problematic as it is, uh, <laughs> it does also, I think, really solidify how depression is a major theme in the show and why this show is special in that way, in mm-hmm. that it is taking seriously that its characters struggle with their mental health and that, again, through that fantastic world they have, they're able to explore that in more visceral ways than other shows might be able to. Mm. And so they put an entire episode aside to have that exploration, which, yeah, just shows how meaningful it is to the narrative they're building, to the characters' experiences in a way that is so, so rare for media, especially television shows. And especially one that's a fantasy. Exactly. What about you? What are your themes and schemes? Well, beyond the themes that you've been discussing, a lot of which I I also wanted to talk about, um, and so beyond our conversation on that, I also want to talk a little bit more about education. At the end, Quentin says to Fogg, I don't need to be taught what magic is or isn't. I need to be taught magic so I can decide for myself what it is or isn't for me. That was almost well put. Yes. I found this interesting because it is really emblematic of some of the difficulties in education and certainly things that I think of as an educator myself, how you have to really balance the theory and the practice of whatever you're teaching, the theory behind the ideas, methodologies, and your pedagogy with the knowledge and skills that you're trying to build in the students. That can be really difficult at times. I certainly know that in my own lesson planning and curriculum building and things like that, I sometimes struggle with wanting to put forward all of this theory at the beginning to help show why the practice that I'll be putting alongside that is meaningful, because that theory can be a useful benchmark. But I also don't want to overload those students with things that are not meaningful because they haven't (laughs) put it into practice yet. And so, yeah, I just find this quote very interesting because it's Quentin arguing that he needs to know less theory, basically. He needs to focus less on the theory and more on being able to use that practice so he can build his own theory, which is also a higher level of scholarship, is crafting your own theory and methodology. And I think that's that's very interesting uh, here and seeing this struggle at break bills and Quentin's struggle with this being heightened with the fact that the beast is after him and people are trapping him in spells and things like that, that, you know, being able to defend himself is a justifiable concern <laughs> and priority for him. But yeah, it just made me think about break bills as an institution and what they're They're teaching to Quentin and the others what we are getting as an audience and narrative of the themes of the show and the ways that magic is being explained to us and these, yeah, theoretical conversations or or even moral conversations about how magic should be used and what magic means, I just find quite interesting. And yeah, it just made me rethink my own methodology of teaching and then the kinds of things that I would want to include in my own curriculum, my own lectures, because I can really empathize with Quentin here of feeling like if he wants to take his education seriously and his identity now as a magician seriously, it can't just be him parroting the lessons, ethics, perspectives, theory of his teachers, but also finding his own meaning making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meaning making instead of madness making. Exactly. Madness being ablest word yourself. Yes. <laughs> yes, of course. But let's head into our next segment titled From Another Point of View, where we look at some of the perspectives of the characters in this episode. I know we're only on episode four and we've had 
two pennies already, but I'm just going to make it three. Three cents, great. <laughs> because, yeah, I was really thinking about what Penny was going through in this episode. Yeah. He enters this dream of Gwendon's because he's not even able to restfully sleep because of this song that's going on, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, what? He can hear other people's thoughts even while sleeping? Like, how does he ever rest? Like, it just... Ah, poor Penny. It just makes me have so much compassion because I have insomnia and sometimes when I just can't rest, it is really difficult to do anything. It is difficult to not snap when you just get a slight bit annoyed. You know, it's just like, ah, I've noticed that, yes. (laughs) But again, yeah, it absolutely makes sense. (laughs) And so just thinking about, oh, even in his sleep, he can't escape. The voices. Then he goes into this dream and sees this racist caricature of himself. That must just be terrible. Him growing up, I think he was supposed to be from Florida. So I'm sure he grew up with a lot of racism against Mm -hmm. him. And so I'm sure it's not surprising, but it would just be disappointing, aggravating, uh... He already doesn't like Quentin. He already gets annoyed with him and frustrated. And, like, now let's add this on that he sees me as this foreigner, you know? Like, the, the what's talked about in Asian American circles as, like, the perpetual foreigner uh, stereotype that people have when, when they approach people or interact with people of Asian descent. And so to see that must have just been, like... Ugh, frustrating, but the fact that he calls it out so quickly and readily means he's probably had to do this before. Mm-hmm. And he's still shocked by it. Like, <laughs> he understandably is still upset by yeah, it. It's absolutely. not just, oh, I'm used to this, but yeah. it's still like. Yeah, it's unsurprising, but still just as enraging. Yeah, exactly. And he, even with that, he urgently goes and helps Mm -hmm. as soon as he wakes up he's not like oh i'll deal with this when i wake up in a few hours no he goes over to other people's community house the physical kids um yeah he he saves quentin really then he uses his psychic powers to go into the dream and tell Quentin what he needs to know and you know he helps be this guide to leave lead him and get him to make this whole lobotomy process disappear and yeah he's he's really trying to help this person that he doesn't like mm-hmm. and that he just found out is racist you know and and that kind of compassion and empathy and generosity of time and energy i think is yeah just really impressive yeah even though he does that and you know that he has this loving side to him like these these are acts of love even if he wouldn't say that he loves quentin but he still does it in a way where he can keep his aloof bothered persona you know where in the end when quentin wakes up he's like took your damn time like Mm. he still has to say that and be annoyed at quentin but if you look at the actions that he did in this episode it is all kindness it is generosity it's loving actions uh, and labor that he's doing which yeah i just think is really cool part of his character that uh, when I watched it previously, I wasn't really thinking about as intentionally. So, yeah, that was just nice to see because I love Penny, but it took me a while to love him the first time I, I watched it. But now I'm like, oh, they're already showing all of these great sides of him. I just wasn't paying enough attention. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I noted that as well. And the scene when they're confronting Julia, Penny in that scene is so angry at her. He even says, I forget exactly what he says, but something like, do you understand what you're putting him through? How could you do that? And that is such an empathetic moment for him where he is 
even for someone who he actively dislikes, he is pissed off on Quentin's behalf Mm -hmm. because his friend would do this to him. It just shows how even as Penny struggles with his abilities and wishes that he didn't have to deal with always hearing other people's voices, which absolutely makes sense, he is still highly empathetic because he's been able to experience that. He has been able to see inside Quentin's mind, see what he's going through, and understand what that means. And yeah, it's just, it shows so much of Penny's character. And I don't just mean that, like, his character traits, but, like, the amount of character he has in the the kind of integrity type of synonym uh, Mm. for character. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's just, uh, I think, uh, a really powerful episode for him, even though he has just a few scenes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where he's not being a racist character of himself. Yes. Yeah, and this time watching it, I was thinking about when, yeah, he's he's talking to Julia and he says, like, do you have any idea where he is? Why would yeah. you do this? He probably has his own very fraught journey with mental health. Mm. Yeah. If you're a little kid growing up hearing voices that no one else can hear... Maybe if your parents had resources, were taken to doctors, were told that you were wrong. Other kids, I'm sure, around would use ableist language like saying you're crazy or things like that, right? And so even if he's never been to a mental health clinic or hospital like Quentin has, he's probably had a really difficult journey where there were times where maybe he was believing what other people were telling him, that there was nothing there, nobody was talking. Certainly wishing that it was true. Mm -hmm. And then when, yeah, the beast comes in and he is able to learn that, no, you're magical and this is why. And then understanding that all of these things that he's hearing are true, Mm. or at least they're, they're true in terms of their happening, whether the thoughts he's hearing people think about themselves are wrong or not, uh, it's still what they're feeling. And that emotional part must be so draining and troubling and terrible to have to, to, have to be around. I mean, and who knows, maybe that's one of the reasons he also doesn't like Quentin. He doesn't want to be around him, maybe, because he also hears Quentin's own self-talk, which is probably negative a lot of the time. Yeah. Then this part is a bit of a spoiler. Like, not for any major plot points. It's not like, oh, these people get together, or this villain is defeated this way, or anything like that. It's more just a little bit of additional background information we get about Penny, but not until the final season, season five. So if you haven't watched that and you don't want this information, you can skip two minutes ahead. Something that was really striking me this time was the fact that his mom was really, really impacted by this like psychic tether to Penny. And when she was around him, it would make her hear the voices and he kept being taken away from her uh, and put into protective services uh, and like foster care because she was a danger to him because of those voices that she could hear and even like set a fire to their apartment. And so we don't know. I mean, they don't get very much time to go into this, but Maybe she had to go to a hospital like this Mm. for a time if she did something that was a danger to others. And not just her and Penny, but a danger to the entire apartment complex and and beyond. And then when we finally meet her, she is working in a mental health hospital. And she says, like, she, she can't even try to start a relationship up with Penny again because she says she would not survive going through Hmm. this process again. 
of hearing these voices. And so when Penny's like, do you have any idea where he is? Like maybe if his mom was forced to be in a place like this for a time, like maybe he visited her yeah. a couple of times or or whatnot. Or maybe in his own foster care, he was in, in institutionalized. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that he has a much more intimate experience with this sort of, not the exact setting because this is from Quentin's mind, but with facilities that are there to try to keep people safe from them themselves and, and people around them safe uh, because of their mental illness. And so, uh, yeah, I was just, I was really feeling for him. He keeps all of this inside, right? Yeah. You know, so. Penny. Yeah. Penny. What a great character. He's a great character. But what about you? Who's your from another point of view? Well, since we got so much insight into Quentin this episode, I thought I'd talk about him. Mm. First, I want to talk about some of the kinds of subconscious, implicit things that we learn about his perspective by just spending time in his subconscious, in this this fear world that he has. We've talked about this already a little bit, but, you know, the ways he imagines the people around him, I think, is really illustrative. Uh, you know, he, as you mentioned sees Alice as someone who is hypersexual, which I don't think is how he sees Alice, but is maybe how he sexualizes Alice. Like, he doesn't see Alice's personality as hypersexual, but mm-hmm. maybe he hopes it would be or that he would have sexual relations with Alice. Like, yeah. I think that he has sexualized her in his head, and here that is manifested through her interactions with him in that way. And also maybe he's picked up on some of her attempts at flirting like when she was drunk true yeah yeah elliot is still delightful (laughs) (laughs) elliot's always delightful but he's also certainly picked up on elliot's liking of quentin (laughs) elliot also wants to be in line to mate with quentin yes exactly yes but the fact that it's alice and elliot i think there as his Mm -hmm. really only friends or friendly people i think is really illustrative of the relationships that he's building at Break Bills. And yeah, then... it's interesting that Margot and Katie aren't there. Exactly, yeah. But also maybe I wonder, is it just based on relationships? I think maybe to some degree, but maybe it's also who he could envision being there with mm. him. Because the Elliot in this nightmare has a substance addiction issue yeah that he's trying to he wants extra pills and and things like that and so maybe like there's some shreds of truth that he's picked up on that maybe he thinks that out of the people he knows at break bills they would be the people who would be more likely patients there whereas penny he doesn't see that way uh or he doesn't pick up on that at least Mm -hmm. and then dean fogg he would also be another authority figure yeah, and, you yeah. know, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I find it interesting also that he does enable Elliot in this subconscious. Like, they have a, an existing relationship in this world that he gives <laughs> him his antidepressants. Yeah. And I find that very interesting as well, that Quentin does not necessarily judge Elliot for that. Uh, he seems to judge Alice for her beliefs that she's an alien and things like that mm-hmm. um, and doesn't want to be that himself. But he doesn't really say anything negative about Elliot the same way. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Penny is seen as not only you know, this racist caricatures, this, this kind of idea of him being foreign, but as untrustworthy. The person who finds his pills and who makes him take his pills and all these mm-hmm. other kinds of elements. Um, <laughs> well, the person who rats him out. Yeah, which exactly. Penny did do. Makes sense. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think it's just uh, interesting illustrations of those uh, those relationships. But the perspective I really wanted to to dive into is that breakdown that he has because it comes from him hearing about how he hurt his father and seeing the scar that that caused and then seeing the video of his manic response to seeing his father as the beast, I think is just really, really powerful. Uh, It certainly 
touched me. You mentioned earlier that how his acting capabilities really sold a lot of these scenes. Mm -hmm. Because I could just so clearly see on him and imagine myself what it would be like to have everyone around you, including your father, telling you that you hurt him, that you hurt someone who you care about. And to not have any memory of that. To, yeah, just have that break something in you in some ways. Or to at least break your will to fight against the delusion. Because at that point, it's not just a delusion that's tied to your own vision of your life and your happiness and your identity, but it's also that you're hurting other people. That Mm -hmm. it's dangerous to others. Now it has real repercussions and repercussions that are so powerful and for for you know Quentin's subconscious to make this into his fear to make this into this world i think shows the extent to which Quentin is afraid of hurting people he's afraid of you know you mentioned this about penny earlier but i think it it really applies to him of being wrong not like being incorrect but of being told that there's something wrong with him that he is broken, um, that he's dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I can definitely empathize with. And to see Quentin visually, like, and then, like, viscerally struggling with that is just, yeah, I think really, really powerful. It made me really feel for him and empathize with his situation here and then, therefore, empathize with his mental health struggles beyond this in a much, much deeper way. Mm. Um, but then the other element that I thought was very, very interesting there was the video of him ends with him saying, I can save you or I need to save you, Mm. which kind of goes back to the things that we've been talking about already about his desire to be a hero, to save people. And here we see his fear that is not only aware of that, but that that could be destructive especially after it was destructive with his relationship with Alice in the episode prior. I can just imagine, yeah, those fears being really important. And then narratively for us, it heightening that as a core element of his character struggle. As, yeah, he's still trying to learn magic and what it means to be a magician and what is right or wrong in how to be a magician. Um, Yeah, it just made me... As much as it was difficult to watch this episode for a number of the reasons of just, like, it makes me sad and and upset to watch it, I still got, I think, a lot more of his perspective and a lot deeper connection to his character in watching it. Hmm. Definitely. I, I thought it was also interesting... Like, I wonder if he has a subconscious, or, or maybe not even subconscious, but a thought that he has ignored about his medications Mm. because it's not just Dean Fogg, but it's also the psychiatrist that he was talking to in that first episode when he was in the mental health clinic. And she says, this is what happens when you don't take what we prescribe. And so, yeah, I kind of wonder if he has some of his own fears about not continuing to take the new medication that they tried to give him to see Mm -hmm. if it could help his depression you know maybe if he was on those medications not that depression just would vanish or something but maybe this dream state would have looked a bit different yeah than what it does yeah i think that's a really really important point that touches on to that first episode when fog tells him not to take the pills anymore he doesn't tell him not to he's just he was saying that we hope you won't have to which it's still problematic, but it's not, no, don't do it. We're throwing them away. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's there's a lot of coercion in there. Even if he doesn't explicitly say it, that it's very difficult for Quentin to be able to interpret it in a different way. I mean, I, I didn't interpret it that way, but, you know, you maybe you relate to Quentin a little more than I do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Neither of us is as strong as you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's revisit the title of this episode, The World in the Walls. How successful a title do you think this is? I'm mixed on it because I I think it's kind of cute that they brought in something that is from the Magician's Trilogy books. Mm -hmm. Because this is 
one of the names of one of the fillery books in the magician's novels. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I think it's cute to, you know, kind of throw in something that would relate for people who've read them. Agreed. But I don't know that this was the time to use it. Also agreed. Uh, I don't think it encapsulates what's going on in this episode that well or accurately. I probably would have gone with something more like back to reality because... He is questioning his reality, Mm. but also with the idea that his reality is depression as well. Mm -hmm. That he's been happy in this bubble as much as he can be, and then bad things keep happening, (laughs) and people are dead, Alice is gone, you know. And no, this is still part of his reality, that he was hoping that he could escape but then he also has to escape the dream. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I would do something more like that, I think. Yeah, I think that it, it could work if, if, like, they're saying, like, the walls of his mind. This is the world within those walls. But without that knowledge of the books, I think that the episode title would be really confusing. And, yeah, it would not serve as a, a strong title. Yeah. Well, that's going to wrap up this discussion. So what's happening next time on The Magicians? So we are going to be watching and talking about episode five, Mending's Major and Minor. We'll probably not like this title. (laughs) (laughs) Where Quentin is forced to participate in team sports. Okay, well, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. Find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. We hope that you'll join us on Patreon to get access to the special features that we're creating. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek geek out. out!